This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. It's an honor to welcome Henry Brady, the Dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy. He's one of the country's leading political scientists. He's a past president of the American Political Science Association. His latest book is called Unequal and Unrepresented. Based on uh, decades of research on political participation in America, it shows that uh, low-income and less educated people have always been underrepresented in U.S. politics and that that hasn't changed. It seems hard to change. I'm grateful to Dean Brady and to Mark Richardson, the president of the Church Divinity School of the Pacific, for bringing me to Berkeley. And I'm excited about the fact that they both see possibilities for other collaborations between the Goldman School of Public Policy and the Graduate Theological Union. Dean Brady, thanks for coming. Uh, We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for having me. I I just feel exceptionally lucky to to be here. Um, Let me just say a little bit about myself. I actually spent a year at a theological seminary. I I went to undergraduate school at the Claremont Colleges at Harvey Mudd College, and I did math and physics, uh, which I thought of as liberal arts, by the way, because I (laughs) I did, because I actually wanted to learn three things, general relativity theory, quantum mechanics, and Gödel's proof, which is the famous uh, (laughs) proof about how there are statements which are true but can't be proven uh, that wrecked the formalist program in mathematics. Um, And and then I realized, though, that I had not had, and it was the 60s, and I got very involved in anti-war work and then worked trying to create a Black Studies Center on the Claremont College's campus. Um, And so I I actually almost got kicked out of college for disrupting the normal operations of the college, which is quite a story. I was (laughs) saved... I was saved by the president of Harvey Mudd College, who saw something good in me, which I really have always appreciated. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't be here today except for Joe Platt, who was a remarkable man. Um, and so I went to Union Theological Seminary, uh, where I mostly led demonstrations around the city of New York and can give a nice tour based upon all the places I've held demonstrations. Uh, and then I went uh, and worked in Washington for four years. And then finally, I went back to graduate school at MIT and got degrees in uh, political science and economics. And then I was lucky enough to get to Berkeley. And then I wandered around, but finally got back to Berkeley. Um, and in the process, I was very lucky because I had, I think, a very broad education from all of those experiences, uh, much broader than a lot of other people in my field. And that was really what propelled me in my, uh, in, in my career. So what I'd like to do is share a screen here, and I hope this comes up. And these are a bunch of slides that I've taken from other sources. And I have to apologize, first of all, some of the data are quite old, but I just don't have time to to extend it. And I'll tell you where I think it's still relevant and where I think it might be problematic. Um, I want to do five things quickly. The civic and political participation of religious attenders and union members, which I think will be useful for you to see. Um, And I'm going to compare religious attenders with union members because I think it gets it to... um, various really important groups in society. 
and tells you something fundamental about American politics. Uh, the political views of religious attenders and union members. Um, and then talk about two dimensions of American politics and the views of religious attenders and union members in that space, the change over time in that space, and then the future of American political parties and politics. And along the way, I will talk about poverty and, it, and about issues related to poverty uh, and how all of these data relate to that. So the data I'm gonna use again in the continuing with the theme with old data is the SITPART study we did in 1991. Uh, I wish there was somebody who had really replicated this. And it is really a shame that 30 years later, I can't point to a study that really has done a good job of replicating what we did 30 years ago. Uh, and then the American National Election Studies, which used to be done every two years and are now done every four years at presidential years. And that provides me with much more modern data. Uh, let me start with civic and political participation of religious attenders and union members. This actually comes from a talk I gave at Princeton commenting on Bob Putnam's book, American Grace. And I thought that Bob's book was a great book. I think the world of Bob Putnam, both personally and, and intellectually. Uh, but actually, he pretty much sort of talked all about religious institutions and didn't talk much about other kinds of institutions like union households. Um, and Bob has a very uh, positive view of America, which by the way, I think has been rattled a bit by events of the last five years. Because <laughs> last time I talked with him, he seemed less optimistic than he's always been. And his optimism, I think is sort of a progressive era optimism, um, which sees the possibilities of finding middle grounds and solving all problems, and doesn't really focus a lot on class and racial conflict. Um, and uh, I come from a different <laughs> tradition. Uh, from more of a conflict tradition, perhaps started when I was in college and almost got kicked out of the college for disrupting the normal operations of the college. Um, and I just believe there's conflict in society and that conflict is very much along economic and racial and other dimensions, but those are two of the major ones that I think really have to take in, be taken into account. So the data here, we define a member of a union household as someone who is in a household where at least one person is a member of a union. Uh, that's pretty standard. We define religious attenders of those who attend church more than once a month, about 50% of Americans. You could get more fine grained if you wanted to, uh, but more than once a month is pretty good definition um, for, what, for a religious attender. This shows you religious attendance in union households over time from 1952 to 2008. And you'll notice two things, that union membership, the red line has gone down precipitously and only goes to 2008. It's pretty much, it's leveled off a bit because what's happened is private sector unions have continued to decline, but public sector unions have grown somewhat. Um, so that line probably is a little flat, but it's stayed at about 13, 14%, very low. Um, religious attendance has declined because more and more people are nuns, as we call them, but by that we mean N-O-N-E-S, uh, not to be confused with N-U-N-S's who taught me as a child. Um, these are people who when asked about their religious preference reply none. Um, and that's gone down a bit, but it's, it's still pretty high. America, as you know, is a nation of people who attend religious institutions and belong to religious institutions. It's a defining characteristic of our society. You cannot understand American politics unless you understand two things, at least, race and religion in America. 
and by the way, the intertwining of those two topics, because the role of religion and race is really fascinating. I was lucky enough to take a course at Union from Jim Cohn, very famous black theologian who wrote book on black theology, who wrote a book on black theology. Uh, so an African-American who wrote a book on black theology. And uh, Jim taught me an enormous amount about the role of the black church in America. Okay, in American Grace, Bob Putnam tells us religious people are more generous, politically active, involved in civic organizations. And what I want to do is compare union members with religious uh, people. Uh, he's right. They are more generous. They are more politically active than the average. But how do they compare with union members, which is in some ways a more reasonable comparison, because you want to compare them with other people who are sort of affiliated with institutions in some way. And here's union households are very high in charitable giving. This is, again, from our 1991 data. I haven't really been able to find a good question to replicate it. But if you note, actually, union households are higher than religious attenders uh, in terms of charitable giving than the population as a whole. Uh, religious attendance is related to greater political activity. So here we have the no is the red bars. Yes is the people who are more than once a month. So look at the green bars and look at the activities, which are voting, contacting a public official, giving campaign dollars, informal activity with fellow citizens, campaign work, or protesting. And so they're basically put on the horizontal axis in terms of their frequency, uh, in terms of what people do. So people are most likely to vote, they're least likely to protest. And what you find is people who go to church more than once a month are much more likely to vote, contact, campaign, engage in informal activity, do campaign work. Although actually you might notice if you just squint a bit that they're actually less likely to protest. Just slightly. <laughs> Compare that with union members. By the way, notice it looks essentially the same. Uh, where you find a difference is look at protest. Union members are much more likely to protest. And indeed, this chart sort of shows you relatively, it takes those various activities reversed, by the way, um, actually not completely reversed, in a different order, let's put it that way. And it shows you that union household members are more involved in unconventional activities compared to religious attenders. This looks at the difference between each group and the average American, and then takes that difference and puts it over the rate of that activity. So the difference might be 5% in terms of voting, but 60% of the people vote. So you get something like a uh, increase of a certain amount by being a union member uh, or being a religious attender. Um, and you see that for uh, union households, there's just an enormously greater frequency with which they protest than the average American uh, when it's normed in that way. And on the other hand, um, and now I see, by the way, as I look at this, the order in which it's put, it's actually in the order of where the union activities are intense versus where the uh, activities of people who go to church are intense. And people who go to church are intense in voting and campaign work, activities which you could think of as really mainstream political stuff, uh, whereas people who work with unions are much more involved with less 
mainstream kinds of things like protest and informal activities. So, and finally, number of organizational memberships by people in groups, you find out that union households are extremely high compared to religious attenders. So the picture we get here is that yes, religious people who are religious attenders are more involved in civic life, more involved in politics than the average American, but actually union members are much more involved in political activities uh, than the average high attender at church. Um, and religious attenders, on the other hand, are more involved in non-political organizations. Um, and so you get a sense that the religious attenders are less political and the union members are more political, especially with respect to what you might call edgy political activities, informal activities and protest activities. Okay. So both religious attenders and union households are active. And this is just basically what I just said. So what does this mean for American politics? Well, consider these results on tolerance and then I'm gonna expand on these results. Uh, I wanna look at the issue bases of the two groups and show you that religious attenders have a particular issue profile <laughs> and union members have a different profile. And this has really significant implications for American politics, especially when you consider that religious attendance has been maintained at a pretty high level and unions have declined precipitously. And so the character of American politics is very much affected by the fact that union members are not as numerous as those people who are much more likely to go to church uh, and who attend church regularly. And that says something about American politics with respect to a whole lot of different issues, including poverty policy, but also social issues like abortion, gay rights, and so forth. Okay, so first of all, you find out that union members are much more tolerant in the sense that they'd be much less willing to remove a book on homosexuality than religious attenders. Almost 40% of religious attenders would remove a book on homosexuality from the library, but only a quarter of union households. 34% of religious attenders would remove a book that said that blacks were genetically inferior and only 28% of union household members. Now you might say, well, that maybe measures racism or something like that, but this is in the context of trying to assess civil liberties. And by the way, I would say that also our sense of civil liberties has changed substantially over the last few years. And it's conceivable that these answers, which come from 1991, might be much different today. Um, and then here, allowing free speech, religious attenders are less likely to be willing to allow free speech, especially on controversial issues like the military or on religion. So by this, these measures, union members are more tolerant and religious attenders are less tolerant. And by the way, if you looked at issues of, of race, you would find somewhat the same things. Um, so what's another way of getting at the issue positions of religious attenders? This shows you the correlation between greater religious attendance and greater Republican Party identification for presidential election years since 1950. And what you notice is 
up until the 1970s, basically there was very little relationship between attending religious services and your party identification. And then suddenly, just around the time when Jerry Falwell came along, when there was an attempt on the part of the Republican Party uh, to make an issue of abortion after the 1973 Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision, uh, after the Civil Rights Acts of 64 and 65, you suddenly find a greater correlation between religious attendance and Republican Party membership until it's now quite substantial. Why did this happen? Um, we're going to get into that in a minute. Um, so how did this occur? Well, one answer is this. If you look at this map of religious adherence by counties in the United States, what you'll see is a very large swath of Southern Baptists along in the South, a lot of Methodists in the middle of the country, Lutherans in the Northern part, that's the yellow, gold. Uh, the Methodists are green. The Baptists are red. And then gray is Mormon in the middle part of the Western part of the country. And blue is Catholic. What happened is that swath along the South were Baptists. They actually had views very similar to Methodists and Lutherans, or many Lutherans, certainly more fundamentalist Lutherans, and Mormons for that matter. Uh, but they were split by one big thing until the 60s. And that is that the South was democratic because of the fact that the Republicans were the party that freed the slaves and imposed reconstruction on the South. And therefore, they did not feel anything but animosity towards the Republican Party. Then along came the 64 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act, the efforts on the part of the Democrats led by Lyndon Johnson to try to provide more civil and political rights for African-Americans, and suddenly all of that changed. The South started to think seriously about becoming Republicans. As that happened, many of these people who were Baptists noticed that they really had a lot in common with the Methodists and others like them, especially fundamentalist and evangelical Christians. And as you probably know, there's distinctions there, but I'm not going to make a lot of a detailed uh, discussion of that. And then suddenly they got together and made common cause. And so suddenly you see the organization of these groups in American politics. And that's precisely when you start seeing this correlation going up. Okay, now let me just explain my theory of American politics. There are two dimensions. Um, you might say, well, where is race in this? And I'll explain that in a little bit because race is certainly an important issue, but race really comes under the rubric of income and economic issues in a lot of our polling data. Uh, although I must say more recently, it's come under the rubric of social, cultural and moral issues. Uh, and there has been a more of a racial cast to people's views on social, cultural, and moral issues. It didn't used to be true, but it is now. So, and unfortunately we don't, by the way, have good enough questions going back so we can separate out the economic dimension of race, which was for many years questions of, should there be welfare programs? With the image being in the minds of many Americans that folks who got welfare programs were uh, 
African-Americans, when in fact, by the way, the majority by far were white. Um, but nevertheless, that was the image. And there's a great book by Marty Gillins uh, where he shows, in fact, how Ronald Reagan and many before him and after him used as the characteristic welfare mother an African-American woman. And so there was a lot of stereotyping to say the least. And so that was an economic issue. Welfare was an economic uh, issue and it was a racial issue. More recently, race has become more correlated with the social, cultural, moral, and I would say national identity issues that are sort of implicit in some of those. But here's, given the data I have and the way I, 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 I can present that data, I'm gonna show you these two dimensions. Um, and let me just give you a quick idea of what distinguishes them. Uh, take union households. There's a famous question called government guaranteed jobs, which when you read it, it's sort of a stupid question. It says, do you believe that the government should provide a government guaranteed job uh, for everybody in America or should they let people get along on their own? Uh, now, the truth is there's seldom been a, a, an administration that's proposed to have government guaranteed jobs. But this question does a great job of getting at economic liberalism, conservatism. And what you find here is on the left-hand side with that red bar going down, that union households are quite liberal on that issue. And on the right, religious attenders are more conservative with conservative being on towards the top, liberal being towards the bottom. You see big differences between these groups on abortion, as you can notice here with union members being liberal and religious uh, attenders being very, very conservative, very, very conservative. Okay, those are the two dimensions. And here's my chart on that, taken from something I wrote in 2002. At the, behind the issues are religious attendance and income. And you can think of religious attendance as a marker for the social moral issues. And you can think of household income as a measure of your position on economic issues. And what this chart does is it plots people's income along the bottom. It plots how frequently they attend church on the vertical axis. And then it takes each group in the electorate and it asks, well, where does that group get placed on this diagram? So for example, fundamentalist Christians at the very top go to church a lot. This is white fundamentalists, by the way, because there are black fundamentalists. Uh, they're separate, they're the B on the diagram, uh, but the white evangelical fundamentalist Christians are at the top, they go to church a lot. They actually have relatively low incomes. And then, you plot each group and then you determine in that group, did it go for the Democrats or Republicans in that election? This is the 2000 election. The evangelical fundamentalist Christians went for Republicans in that election as did all of the groups who were the squares. You can use your own mnemonic here for why I made the Republicans squares. Uh, the <laughs> Democrats are triangles. And what you notice first of all is that these are catch all parties. There's lots of different groups and that some of the groups are sort of remarkably close to one another, but really in different camps. Um, union members, for example, and this always surprises people, have relatively high income. And the reason is, is that by 2000, most of the manufacturing jobs were gone. 
Uh, and what was left actually were pretty high income manufacturing jobs. And more to the point, many of these jobs now were things like airline pilots or nurses. And it's, it's not to say that nurses get enormous salaries, but they, they do better than, than many folk, other folks. So unions had relatively high salaries. And so you get two oblongs here, the Republicans and the Democrats. The average American is that gold dot in the middle. And then you've got all these different groups that you can look at. Uh, then what we can do is look at two groups, the ones we've been talking about. There's the high religious attenders. Now, now I've narrowed the field. So before I was just talking about high religious attenders. Now I'm gonna focus upon fundamentalist evangelical white Christians. And you notice where they are towards the top, then union members down towards the bottom. Now what we do is we say, okay, how does this translate into issues? And so we take measures of the two dimensions, religious attendance, what issues are related to that, and the issues related to income, which are the economic issues, and we get this diagram. And the two issue dimensions are moral conservatism and economic conservatism. Economic conservatism is based upon that government guaranteed jobs uh, question, and another question called aid to minorities. Do you believe that the government should give aid to minorities? Notice that puts together economic issues with race. And it turns out it's highly correlated with answers on government guaranteed jobs. Partly because as I said, the issue during many of these uh, decades was about welfare. And it was a highly racialized vision of welfare. The moral conservatism is abortion and a question about uh, a woman's place is in the home or not. Uh, it sounds like a rather antique question at this point, uh, but it's been on the surveys for a long period of time and it does seem to measure uh, moral conservatism. Okay, what you find here is that the diagram seems to have rotated a little bit and the fundamentalist Christians, for example, are still at the top, very morally conservative, but notice how economically conservative they are. So despite the fact if they have very low incomes, they're economically quite conservative. It's an interesting question as to why. Union members are near the middle of the diagram and are moderate on economic issues, despite the fact that they have relatively high incomes. Blacks, by the way, you might notice, are morally pretty conservative, uh, but they're very, very liberal on the economic issues. Okay, and then I, I draw a line, which is we call the political cleavage line. The people to the left go with the Democrats, the people to the right go to the Republicans. The important thing to note here is that the line is not vertical or horizontal. Think for a moment, if it were vertical, that would mean the country splits along economic grounds. If it were horizontal, it would mean the country splits along social and moral conservatism. If it's diagonal, it means both issues matter. And there's a bit of trade-off in people's minds. So this is just, again, that same diagram I just showed you, but enlarged a bit with the, uh, the, the fundamentalists and the and union members on it. Okay, now what I wanna talk to you is something that really is the important dynamic of American politics these days. And that's change over time in the dimension. In economics, we take two questions which I mentioned already, government provision of jobs 
and should there be government aid to minorities? And we look at that over time. And social, moral, cultural, we look at abortion and role of women. And we plot answers to those by various groups over time. So this goes from 72 to 2004. It could be extended <laughs> now to 2016, actually to 2020, when the new ANES data come out for the 2020 election. But the pattern is actually, if anything, increasing. And what you see here is that there's more and more polarization. And let's look at the groups. There are Democratic groups and Republican groups, and they're described by whether they gave money to the campaign, whether they worked for the campaign, or they were just Democrats. And not surprisingly, the people who are just party identifiers are towards the interior here. This is, whoops. This is the people who are just Democrats in this purple line, I guess. Uh, these are the people who are just Republicans. They're the least paralyzed, the general population. But as you get to people who are more activist and invested in a party because they either gave money, which in the case of the Republicans up here, this dotted blue line are Republicans who gave money. The dashed green line is people who worked for the Republican party. Notice how polarized they are compared to the people at the bottom who are Democrats who gave money or Democrats who worked in a campaign. Notice two things. First, it was polarized to begin with. That's the New Deal cleavage, probably goes back before then, we just don't have data for it, but that's the difference in economic perspectives between Democrats and Republicans. Notice how it's increased over time and notice how the activists are especially polarized. So that's, a change in American politics, but not a sea change. We had this cleavage at least since the New Deal. This is the sea change in American politics I'm about to show you. So think of the diagram you're looking at, and now look at this one. Actually, in 1972, the Republicans were more liberal on abortion than the Democrats. The parties were bunched. They were not separate with respect to social moral issues. Going back to the earlier diagram, the correlation between religious attendance and being a Republican was very low. There were high religious attenders in both parties. Both parties had people who were morally conservative and people who were morally liberal. There's been a tremendous sorting process in the last 50 years. And now we have incredibly polarized parties, and especially among the activists, if you look at this diagram closely. The identifiers are more polarized over time, but the activists are much more polarized. Okay, and it, by the way, if you continue this out, it gets worse. That's the, it's not just economic polarization in American politics, it's in fact even more so polarization with respect to social, moral kinds of issues. Okay, so here's a question. What would America look like if getting represented by a labor union were easier because there were labor unions? And on the other side, that maybe people were less involved with their churches and religious institutions? How about if there were a labor or socialist party in America? And the answer is that you would get a much different politics if that were so. 
because we have a large number of people who attend churches at a high rate, because they tend to be conservative on the moral and social issues, because that issue has now become important for American politics in a way that it wasn't 50 years ago, we get a tremendous emphasis in our politics on social issues, this new dimension of political cleavage. And that you could argue is less representation for the working class because these social issues are cross-cutting to the economic issues. And as a result, economic issues have to compete with these social moral issues. Now, what's interesting is these social moral issues now have gotten mixed up with social identity issues and with race. And I wish I had the data to show you that. I'm sure that's true. I, I know that certainly currently it's true. I wish I could show you that it's what's happened over time. It's very hard to do that given the data we have, but that seems to be what's happened. So um, that means that in terms of poverty policy, we have the classic problem that economic issues like government guaranteed jobs were always related somewhat to race and that made people more conservative than they might have otherwise been with respect to working class issues if they were working class people. Now that's gotten mixed up with this social moral dimension and that's made people very conservative with respect to race which is another dimension of poverty. And here we are. And it leads to a very volatile, intense politics about poverty in America. Okay, what's the future of American politics and parties? Here's my model of the Republican Party on the economic dimension uh, and on the social dimension, the two dimensions I've been talking about. On the upper left-hand corner are the white Christian fundamentalists or evangelicals lower income and education, very high religious attendance, and evangelical fundamentalist. Very conservative on the social dimension. Uh, not so conservative actually on the economic dimension because they are relatively low income. So these folks, for example, do want to make sure that nobody messes with their Medicare. And actually one of the things Trump did early on is he said he wouldn't mess with Medicare Medicaid or Social Security. Uh, he really didn't mean Medicaid because Medicaid, as you know, is for the poor. Uh, I think that just showed that he didn't actually know that there was a difference between Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, and he later amended that to really focus on Medicare and Social Security. The populist right is moderate on economic issues for the similar reasons, uh, more moderate on the social dimension, although it's not clear what it really believes on the social dimension just as it wasn't hard to figure out what Trump maybe really believed. And it used to be that the Republican Party was the two groups at the top of this, the white fundamentalist Christians plus the traditional conservatives. I called them the Wall Street and Main Street wings of the party. Now, increasingly, the populist right is very, very important. And I would actually add a new dimension here, which is identity politics. And that's where the populist right is extremely powerful. Uh, and the libertarians, by the way, a lot of them in Silicon Valley, think Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, people like that, uh, Rand Paul, uh, Ron Paul, that group, uh, 
they're they really don't have a home in the Republican Party much anymore, nor do traditional conservatives. And this makes poverty policy very complicated. The populist right sees in poverty policy giveaways to groups like immigrants, even though immigrants typically don't get a lot of the poverty programs, to immigrants, to um, African-Americans, and to Latinx people. Uh, And white Christian fundamentalists have similar concerns. So where the Republican Party is going to go is right now there's a tremendous fight between the populist right, the Trump folks, and the traditional conservatives like Mitch McConnell. Uh, and it's not clear who's going to win. And, you know, I put Mitt Romney with the traditional conservatives, the Bush family, and so on and so forth. Uh, here's my model of the Democratic Party. There's not such, I think, a great fight within it. Actually, I think there's a lot of agreement about poverty policy these days within it. Uh, the New Deal Democrats, Latinos and Blacks, populist left, Clinton Democrats. Now, it's the Clinton Democrats who were probably the most conservative about poverty policy. Uh, and remember that it was Bill Clinton who reformed welfare and with the Personal Responsibility uh, Act of 1996, which put uh, time limits on welfare. Uh, but I'd say that that group is not particularly ascendant within the Democratic Party these days. So that's it. I uh, hope I've given you some food for thought. We really, we really appreciate your leadership. You're more radical than I knew you were. And on a, another occasion, uh, since I have a theological interest, I want to learn <clears throat> um, how your study about general relativity, quantum mechanics, and the Goebbels theorem, how that affected your notion of what's real in the world. How, does that, how did that change your theology? You went, from, you went from doing that to going to Union Seminary. So I'm going to give a one-sentence description of what happened. I became, I was a Catholic boy. Grew up a Catholic boy uh, and really believed in religion. And then I hit logical positivism around the age of 15, 14 or something like that. And I just was absolutely blown away by it and believed every word it said, except I knew it was wrong. And what the study of those things did was give me room for rejecting the tenets of logical positivism. Thank you very much. We're really grateful. Have a good weekend, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.